Despite starting a career in product management at one of the big companies, I have never considered to do the same job but working for the government. Not because I didn't want to, mainly because I did not know there was even an option. As it turns out, it is, in fact, an option. And a pretty impactful I wanted that. To learn more about this career trajectory, I chatted with Adriana Tan, Director of Product Management for the City and County of San Francisco. She shares her journey as a founder of startups and nonprofits, an avid hiker and an advocate for an open web, and how it all combines in her work. Enjoy the show. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Work Item Podcast. And today I have, as usual, another wonderful guest, Adriana Tan. Welcome, Adriana. Hi. How you doing? Well, it's fantastic to have you here. And I'll just start with the fundamental question here uh, for this entire show, which is, tell us more about your career. Tell us what you do. Oh, where do I start? Um, I like to tell people that my career in tech started with a dream that I had of selling ice cream. Um, and so I, uh, I love ice cream. Um, I eat a lot of it. I make a lot of ice cream. And so shortly after college, I was like, maybe I should make and sell ice cream. Uh, and then I did that. And then I was like, well, I'm not going to make very much money doing this. And so I actually started a, um, a dev shop that was working with clients to build apps. And the original idea was that I would make apps and then I would use that money to like spin up the ice cream business. It didn't quite work out that way. I still make ice cream for fun and maybe one day I'll go back to it. But that is exactly how I got into technology. And I actually really loved that story and I wish I told more people about it. Ice cream. This is a very, I want to say like non-traditional path to tech because I don't know anyone else who would say that this is their career beginning. It's also one of those areas where I feel like it is combining the creativity with the logic of tech. Yeah, exactly. So um, for me, I think that ice cream and software, I like to say are very similar because it's about all about making things from scratch, uh, making it well with what you've got at the time. Um, and, you know, bring your own philosophy to it as well. So like in one case, I like a certain type of ice cream. I also like building software in a different way. Um, and so I actually already had some of those skills to build some of these applications early on, you know, early 2010s, um, and really was able to sort of catch that wave of people were really excited about technology, and I got to be a part of it. So even though I didn't study computer science, I was actually a political science major, but I had already done a lot of like freelance work. I had been building websites for most of my life, actually. I had been doing a lot of like different things with my hands, just like coding and uh, making sites, making projects. And so all of that really came together. And through a very roundabout way, this is where I am today um, as the director of product management for the city of San Francisco. From political science to coding and product management, what was the path like? Because this is a misconception that I talk to folks pretty often when they think that if I want to break into tech, if I want to do product management, data science, engineering, I have to have a computer science degree. And that's just patently not true. What was your experience like in making this change? 
Yeah, so so I heard a lot about that um, when I was in school as well in college. Often folks were like, well, you should definitely do more of like these types of courses. Um, but for me, I was lucky in that I had a lot of like mentors and role models, people that I already knew who were in technology in some way or other. And I could tell that, you know, there were people doing all kinds of interesting things with like different backgrounds. And in fact, those backgrounds really served them well. So I really persisted with that belief. But of course, I think today there is also a case to be made that it may be harder to break into the industry now that it's so much more competitive unless you have very specialized skills. But for me, um, I was personally lucky that I was able to bring a more generalist approach and to be able to really like explore the different pieces of what interests me and what I like, rather than to just like follow this one path. Like I think if I had been a product manager from like day one, I would have been like, I don't really like this. But coming at it later with different perspectives and different experiences, I'm able to then bring all of those to the role today. Tell me more, what got you interested in product management? So I've always been interested in building and creating things. And I think that's fundamentally the core of like what I do. So even though like, you know, my CV seems a little bit strange in that I've done all kinds of things. I've at various points been a launcher helping companies launch their businesses in Southeast Asia. I've also like run companies myself. Um, but through all of that, there's always like a thread of let's create something out of very little and let's make something happen. And if you can't, figure it out you just go figure it out so that's what i really enjoy about technology and being in a business especially in product where i think i get to do the most of that sort of work and there's quite a bit in product to figure out and i think any any product role of any company with a startup or big one which kind of leads me to the next question something that you mentioned is that you are a director of product management for the city of san francisco again following the trend of uh very unique choices. This is not the typical product space that you think somebody would work in, right? Because if I talk to a graduate, they think, yeah, I want to work at one of the FANG companies as a product lead. You went and became a director for the city of San Francisco. What's it like? It was definitely an exciting time uh, in the last couple of years, especially like, you know, when I started this role, uh, I knew very little about the space. Like it was sort of like, you heard about civic tech, you heard about like random people being like, you know, in the industry, but I didn't really know what it was. And I didn't really feel like I could like ask a lot of people, but I went for it anyway. And in a lot of ways it's because like, I kind of feel like I have a good sense of, you know, what I really want to do. And I just sort of followed that gut feeling. And I think that's served me really well as opposed to like choosing product, uh, choosing career paths that are more typical. Like that's, I've just learned the hard way sometimes that that's not really for me um, because of my personality and the things that I'm interested in. So in taking up this role, um, it wasn't completely a blank slate in that I already knew about um, government tech uh, coming from Singapore originally, where they have a very strong um, gov tech agency with lots and lots of people doing things that have impacted my own daily life from filing taxes to like, you know, getting like notifications about all sorts of things. Um, so I was already well aware of the sort of impact that I could make in a similar role. And so um, having the opportunity to join the team, uh, which is San Francisco Digital Services, the digital team that's embedded within city government was really exciting. Uh, we had really strong leaders and I had really like inspiring peers. And so I felt like it was great to have that opportunity to 
take up that role and seek all these challenges, of which there are many, um, and to really try to give back in a way to the city that I'm now part of. What are the biggest differences now that you have this kind of contrast between the, the I want to say, like the government uh, product roles and, say, uh, traditional tech government or tech roles? Um, different in some specific ways, like it, you definitely try not to move fast and break things. In fact, a lot of things in government is about actively not moving fast and so that you can't break anything, or at least so that a single person cannot break anything, at least on the technology side of things. Um, so that's very different from the early 2010s, like startup culture that was a part of, uh, super different. That was the culture of, well, do something first, ask for forgiveness later, or, you know, all that, all that stuff. Um, and while that sort of culture has taught me a lot, I also feel like at this point in my career, I'm able to sort of identify some of the things that I didn't like about that and to try to do things more intentionally in a different space by applying very similar skills, but applied to a whole different set of things. The biggest issue, the biggest challenge and the biggest difference really is that when you have, when you're the sole provider of a service, there are literally no other competitors, unless somebody were to move and go somewhere else to another government, um, then, and, and when the driver isn't revenue, right, then how do you get something done? So very often, a lot of tools that I might have relied on in the private sector, they're not built for someone like me. <laughs> they're, um, I don't have a shopping cart to like check out. I don't have like revenue-based things to optimize, but it's then a matter of like, well, what do we, how do we do, how do we do, deal with what we've got and build a lot of the things in a, at a speed and quality that people are coming to expect, expect, especially if they live in a city like San Francisco. Um, so yeah, some really major challenges, but I would say that it's no different than someone joining like a large enterprise organization or very mature tech company. Like you don't join Oracle or Microsoft at a, at a certain stage like right now and be like, I myself as an individual can change the entire organization. So I don't see why somebody would feel the same way about joining government as well. You do what you can in the space that you can carve out. Yes. And what's interesting too is that you called out, you know, you can't move fast and break things and only you brought up taxes and to me, uh, so I'm in Canada where we're filing all the taxes that are online. And it's like, you can only break so much when it comes to something as essential as a government service before there's consequences to that, which I don't think is the case with a lot of tech companies, right? Like if your service is down for, I don't know, changing your avatar, it's yeah. not that big of a deal, right? Do you lose your photos? Do you lose everything? Do you lose your money even? Right. And that's mostly okay. But I want to learn yeah. more about, you mentioned that you're working in an environment where there's obviously no competitors. The motivation is not monetization and unstoppable growth. How do you make product decisions? Like what powers, you know, I'm, I bet there is still customer research because your customers are the residents of the city uh, that are using the government services. But how you make other decisions in addition to just qualitative data? Yeah, so um, it's important to sort of take into consideration like who your customers are. In this case, it's the public of San Francisco. It could be people who live and work here. It could be businesses that operate here. It could also be people who like 
you know, work here but don't live here. So um, by and large, our team has a couple of like principles that we try to follow as far as possible. We know that we are serving people of very diverse backgrounds. San Francisco is one of the most diverse cities in the world. Um, we know that despite what it looks like from the outside, there is considerable like differences in like income. Um, there are differences in like like access to technology and connectivity. We can't always assume that someone in San Francisco has got speaks English really well or like that they use like the latest smartphones. And so a lot of the time, the work that we do has to cater to everyone. And that means including somebody who doesn't have any of these things. So by following some of these principles and always keeping in mind who it is that we're trying to serve, um, that helps me make a lot of product decisions. Very early on, for example, in the pandemic, there was this huge desire to really just do more for the public and to be able to put out the best available information out there. Um, and by, even though it was a very chaotic time, just knowing that have that, that our team has these principles in place really helped to anchor a lot of the things that we do. So if you look on sf.gov, for example, which is the city website that my team managers and leads, um, you'll see that there's very accessible, easy to understand information in all languages, not just in English. We have a policy of making sure that the English terms that we use um, are, comp you know, are easily understood by people of like different reading standards. So it's not just legalese, it's not just jargon, which is also how it early on in the pandemic it ended up that a lot of people around the country were starting to look at our site for guidance instead of like from the cities they lived in. So things like that, um, just having these principles in place really helped to inform the products decisions that we make. Love the focus on accessibility because this is something that is often overlooked. You know, having worked on different product teams, oftentimes when the topic of accessibility comes up, folks often think of it as an afterthought. You know, like, yeah, I have a product to build. I'll worry about making it accessible later. And you can't do that in government because it's, again, essential. Yeah. Exactly. So that's one of the things we care about a lot. And of course, there's always more to be done. There are things there in that space that we don't do well yet, but we're always trying. Continuing the topic of your career, uh, you've held many roles. Uh, you've been a co-founder, you've been a marketing manager, a VP, even a CEO, now director of PM. How do you navigate just this multitude of roles I've also been a nonprofit founder. Or a nonprofit founder. I'm sorry I missed this one. Uh, but no, it's okay. again, a very uh, rich background. Uh, so, what helped you navigate and jumping kind of from role to role or graduating from one to another? So, I found out recently that I have ADHD, which I think explains a lot of my career choices. But to me, they're kind of fundamentally the same. Um, it's like, how do I use the skills that I've got to try to solve a problem that I care about? So in the example of the um, of being a co-founder, um, I had been working in startups in Singapore for some time, and I had also worked in many parts of Southeast Asia, helping companies launch their products there. So I had an opportunity to 
um, really take the connections that I had and apply that to the technology um, skills that I had and the networking skills that I had and to build the team that I was really happy with to try to address something that was important to me at the time, which is about financial inclusion in Indonesia. And so I had started a company in that space um, and for a number of reasons, uh, you know, startups are really hard. <laughs> that went on for quite a while, but I'm now here. But I kind of feel that in my role today, what I had learned in that particular position as a startup founder building products um, for very low end smartphones in Indonesia tracks almost directly with the work that I'm doing right now, making sure that services are available to low income San Franciscans and to everybody else for that matter. So um, I don't really see them as very different. Um, the job titles may sound different. And in fact, that was one of the things that really surprised me about um, coming to work in the US that there's a very set path almost for how you would get into technology. And there was very little variance or room for variance in, in those paths. Like you almost had to like climb a ladder, so to speak, whereas um, I was used to something somewhat different, maybe because the technology sector in Southeast Asia at the time was not as developed, but that's probably closer to what it is here today. What is an approach that's an alternative to a career ladder? Uh, again, just pure curiosity, because I was, I want to say, raised uh, in the tech industry on the same worldview, where there's a ladder, there is a predefined set of, you know, if you're an engineer, it goes from one to three to senior to staff and so on. If you're a PM, it goes to the same level. So it's very little kind of flexibility, if you will. What's the alternative to that? Yeah, so I think I approach my career much the same way I approach my personal growth. Like I think that, you know, if you have a growth mindset and you don't feel like making decision A cuts you out from all these other possibilities. And if you're just someone who's curious and who's willing to take risk and to and if you have the privilege to take some of that risk, then that for me has it's for me personally, that's been what's worked out better for the long term rather than following that set path because I'm not very good with following the rules or the paths that have been given to me. In fact, I ran away from um, very well-defined paths, which is, I would say, the very Singaporean way of life. So I just sort of rejected all of it completely. And I was always very adamant that I had to like find my own path even though it was sometimes longer or more meandering. So I'm not saying that it will necessarily be something that will work for everybody. But if you're someone like me who doesn't have the ability to follow like very set ways of life, then this, you know, just know that you're not alone and that just following your gut, having like a growth mindset, knowing how to build on your skills and market yourself and make the right links and connections, all of those things are sometimes more important than the what's on your CV. It's optimizing for opportunities, if you will. It's I don't know it's an overly reductive way of putting it, but really is just figuring out what is something that you enjoy doing and pursuing that instead of a, you know, climb the ladder, I guess. Yeah. And um, it's been my experience that sometimes climbing the ladder can be, it can be hard to set yourself apart as well. Besides, climbing a ladder also means that it's sometimes it's on a whim of somebody else that kind of manages that ladder, right? So you might be going above and beyond, and it's still not going to be enough in the eyes of somebody that thinks you're not ready versus 
you know, we were having this conversation now when there is the great resignation happening and, you know, talking to some of the folks, you hear the stories of like, yeah, you know, I could stay at this company and wait until I get promoted or I can leave and get promoted right now. Yeah. So different things are different, important to different people. Um, and for me personally, I cannot stay a day in a job that I dislike with people that I dislike in a cause that I don't care for. Um, and so that's what's keeping me here. And I, I've been in positions before, obviously out of need or in, in the past when I've made decisions where I felt like I can't do any more of this type of work or this type of industry. Um, and I certainly am optimizing for never being in that position ever again. Was it in any way related to the, the concept of burnout? Is this about, you know, this is this is kind of it or is it just more of I'm interested in a different thing? Like what should folks worry about when thinking about those decisions? Obviously, if a, co- a company or product or industry is not aligned with your values, then I think burnout can happen much faster. But then obviously there are also other like causes for burnout, like harassment and toxic workplaces and things like that. So now that people have more of a choice, I think it's great that they can make those decisions for themselves. But I'm starting to see, you know, in candidates as well as like in like other PMs that I'm mentoring that more and more people are starting to ask the question of, well, how can I align my values and my beliefs with the mission of the work that I'm doing? Which is great for me because a lot of them want to come and work in my industry now. Which is a great trend, and I hope that it continues because this is something that is it's hard to teach. So seeing that being an inherent kind of, yes, I want to do this is, is fantastic. But to learn more about your career, uh, you know, we talked about jumping different positions. What helped you be good at kind of learning new things as you go from role to role? Because while as you described, you know, the title might be different, but the gist of the role is kind of the same. There's probably still things that were completely new or unknown unknowns going from role to role. Were there any pieces of your kind of like the the skill base or maybe specific experiences that helped you uh, kind of alleviate the growing pains going from role to role? Yeah, so I've certainly found that it's important to try to tell the story of who you are and what you do and why you're great for that role. Um, I think for many founders who have either sold their companies or moved on, um, they find that it's very hard to find a fit in the private sector because then it becomes a question of, your CV doesn't really track with the career ladder. So how do you fit in? And very often, I think sometimes at bigger companies, people are not really interested in like former founders because there's a sense of if you're an entrepreneur, you're just going to like, you know, find, get back on your feet and go start something again, which is entirely true. But ex-founders can also try to like tell the story of why what they did before is relevant to what they're interested in doing now. So that's just really what I had to spend some time trying to figure out. That That's actually a very interesting observation. I, I never thought of looking at it through that lens of founders can kind of pick themselves up again and, and, and run on another initiative. Totally new. Yeah. And you definitely want to be in a place that is going to be, you know, supportive towards that kind of uh, possible future path for you if that's who you are instead of trying to go somewhere and like, you know, be somebody that you're not. I like that. I like that approach. It's 
goes back to what you mentioned earlier, and that is intentionality. You have to be intentional about what you're doing. Is that something that you kind of develop with time or was it always like, I'm intentional about things? I kind of think that's a personality trait that maybe when I was younger didn't quite work out so well because then people are just like, you're so intense or you do too many things. But I think with time and experience, um, it's now become almost like a superpower almost to really just sit down and go, well, how do I really feel about this? Right. And um, I remember before I took on this job, I was talking to a friend of mine who's like a career coach and he was like, well, if the recession happened or if shit happened or if there's an emergency and obviously all of those things happened to, to some extent, what would you rather be doing? And then I just had an exercise to sort of think through that for a bit and weighing the different like options that I had. And I was like, well, I want to do this because I knew that I would wake up being excited about trying to do this type of work rather than doing something that was completely not aligned with my values. In that domain, are there any other skills that helped you be a successful product manager? Yeah. So I think um, we often talk about how writing is like really important, not just for product managers, but I also think for engineers and definitely for CEOs and founders and anybody who wants to lead anybody. Um, being able to put your ideas out there is a really important skill. And so for me, that's also somewhat related to my career growth in a way because um, I have had a blog for, oh my God, 20 three years now. Wow. <laughs> so I have always been writing in some form, not necessarily always about work or my profession, um, but even just random ideas have sometimes linked me to people who have brought me to a different point in my life or my career in some way or other. Um, I got my first job out of college overseas in Dubai because somebody really liked something that I had written about Indian food on my blog. And he was like, hey, do you want to come and work with me here? Um, I've had so many random connections. Um, and then now on Twitter, obviously, it's been great to connect with folks that are doing like, you know, mind-blowing work in all the fields that I'm interested in, not just in product or engineering, but also in like research, also in like AI and in like data ethics and things like that. And I've learned so much about all of these things from folks who are out there from interacting with their writing and what they've done. Um, and so writing is an important skill. Um, I would like to do more of it as it relates to the profession and to the discipline of product management, but, um, and also about like uh, what it means to work in civic tech, civic tech and to work in government. This is an underutilized skill for sure. And as you were talking about this, it reminded me just the the serendipity that blog posts open up because uh, yeah. it's funny. I also got my first job thanks to a blog post that I, that I oh, wrote cool. and somebody reached out and they were like, hey, maybe you should work for us. And in, in the modern day, there is such a focus on folks trying to create content, you know, be it blog posts or newsletters with the intent of monetize, 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 instead of just just blog things that you're curious about and interested about. And who knows yeah. who's going to find that? Yeah. So I think I'm starting to see a resurgence of that mindset, which makes me really happy. You were asking earlier about like my beliefs about the open web. And I think that I'm starting to see more people push back on the ideas of like, 
you know, putting all our content on like social media only and not on like platforms that we host. So that's definitely been one of my projects that I'm working on to really try to like reclaim some of that space of that early 2000s technology that, you know, really shaped my career and who I am and my beliefs. And even the idea of like monetizing my blog, it's like, it's still something that gives me pause because I'm like really old school that way. And I believe very much in the serendipity and building the connections and just putting out content and knowledge out there. Tell me more about this passion for the open web. Like, where does it come from? What what powers it? Um, a belief in the importance of text <laughs> And uh, and in an earlier time of you know optimism um, around making connections with people who have things to say to each other, and also a fear of uh, what the future of the web will look like if it continues to be dominated by just a handful of companies that I don't like or trust. Working in government, this is probably one of the prime spaces where open web is crucial to the success mm -hmm. of everyone, because you need to make it accessible, you need to make it available to anyone, which is not yeah. necessarily some, you know, forcing somebody into, you know, we're going to convince you to install our iOS app because you need, we need, we need that engagement. Yeah, exactly. So, I, I mean, just taking the topic of like, you know, tutorials, for example, I think that's an example where you can really see the difference between the web of that time and today, where so much content is wrapped up in videos. And that's not great for people who have accessibility requirements. And that's not great for people like me either who like to read over watching a video. Um, and you know, if it's in a wall garden somewhere, it can't be easily found. And uh, I don't really want to sit through like 20 minutes of a thing just to see how to do a thing. And so I'm really sort of trying to do uh, some experiments and some projects to try to like reclaim some of that space. And so, for example, when I was in a 21 day quarantine in a hotel in Singapore, <laughs> Um, I started a project to get off Google Photos and to build my own self-hosted um, you know, photo storage space, which actually worked out really well. There's a whole community of folks, just like in the old days, who are now saying, well, what can we do to try to, you know, rebuild some of that for and manage some of that ourselves? And of course, not, not everybody wants to get into managing your own servers, but there's a lot of different tools that you can use to like publish on your own, on a platform that you own, so that, you know, it can't just disappear like we've seen so often with things like Tumblr. Yes, I also love this approach because I am fascinated by people building home labs when they literally just assemble like a server rack at home in a basement somewhere or in their apartment. And it's a fascinating mm -hmm. thing because somebody looking at this will say, well, you know, you have Google Photos, you have Google Drive, Dropbox, why do you need your own? There's something very, very cool about being able to just build it and just make it run on your own. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time lurking in the subreddit home lab and also in data hoarder and also in data curator. And, you know, if you ever have some very obscure question about how to manage large volumes of data, these are the places you'd go. But for most of the folks, you know, they're, it's fine to just be happy with what, what's out there and available. I've just moved on from the idea of being a product to certain companies and just wanting to just you know, engage in the web the way that I prefer. Oh, absolutely. And also you learn new things from those subreddits because to me, I never realized there's a thing called hard drive shucking. 
which apparently mm-hmm. you can buy them in the case. And yeah, shipped them like an oyster. Yes, and it, I I saw that term and I was like, what the heck is hard drive shocking? And then <laughs> exactly what it things to learn like. from Reddit. On a different note, and this is kind of going back a little bit more to you know we we talked about your career, we talked about how you got where you are. You have a pretty good perspective on the industry and what product folks are doing from your vantage point. What do you see as uh, maybe some of the gaps that exist today in the product space where maybe, you know, specific skills that folks are underutilizing or maybe not as focused on that uh, otherwise would make them good product people? Yeah. So um, coming from a background where I started several teams and products and orgs, I think that one of the key things that is missing from maybe more like entry level like PMs is like the ability to really think strategically about not just the thing or the one feature that you're doing, but about like what that means, right? And to be able to get people to buy into like a bigger vision. And maybe the comes of experience, maybe it's fine to have PMs who specialize in different things. And some folks are a lot more detail oriented, which is great. Some folks are more like, you know, more founder types who have more of a bigger vision that can that would benefit other people and so maybe somewhere trying to find a sweet spot of that in-between place i think is a skill what do you think is something that can help somebody develop that kind of the the strategic thinking potential because i've seen that firsthand when it's very easy to kind of get bogged down on the details you're especially as you called out entry-level folks that are out of college you're a pm you're driving a feature spec, so you're just like heads down to feature. I don't want to fail this. I don't want to lose my job. How does one go about developing the, you know, looking outside the box a little bit? I think maybe it comes from like repeated practice of like building something from scratch and make and shipping it and making it happen, even if it's not like a big tech product, even if it's like a website for a community that you're a part of or an open source project that you're a part of, just seeing it and taking responsibility for making it happen from start to finish, especially if it hasn't existed before or if you're making a reboot. All of those things are like practice. I would just think of it as practice to help you get better at that kind of strategic thinking and communication and getting folks together to to, to make something new. Um, and I think sadly in our industry, there's not a lot of paths for people to do that in a way that is, uh, you know, it compensates people for your time. And which is a challenge because it's, I want to say like a privilege to be able to work on unpaid work. And especially when somebody's like, yeah, go for an unpaid internship or like not everyone can do that. And when you live somewhere that is, you know, cost of living. So I definitely would not advocate for unpaid internships, but if there are things that you want to make for yourself, that can also be a great way to learn. I love that. So practice and find a community. Adriana, I have one last question for you. And that is... If you would look through your career, if you look at all the uh, you know things that you've learned through your journey, what's something that is unconventional, that maybe is uncommon, that you'd recommend folks focus on that want to follow in your footsteps? Maybe they want to work uh, as a product lead in government, or they want to be an engineer in government. I would just say always be you know talking to people. Uh, not just at conferences, but also just generally. I think that for me, I got the most 
opportunities just from having a large and diverse network um, of people in different industries, not just this one. And so in that way, I was able to really like whittle down all of the different choices that were given to me and to be able to then like shape a career that really interested me. So I don't know how actionable it is, but really keep an open mind, talk to lots of people, do stuff that excites you, that interests you, and maybe the rest of it will follow. But also make sure that you're not being exploited. Don't be exploited. Find a community. <laughs> and remember that it is about people. So at the end of the day, it's your network and folks you can always fall back on for support. This is fantastic. Adriana, where can folks find you online to learn more about the work you're doing, your writing, and all the awesome things? Well, I think the best way is probably my Twitter, um, where I'm very active. Um, and it's twitter.com slash skinny latte like to drink um, and so I mouth off on a lot of things over there but also have a lot of cute pet photos and food pictures I'm also an avid cook and hiker so it'll be a combination of really strange things mostly things in my brain but you'll be able to find links to the other things that I do there as well absolutely fantastic Adrian it's been an honor talking to you today for folks listening there's also going to be a transcript. So if you feel like reading this, you don't have to listen to the whole episode. Just read through and uh, find all the fantastic advice. So Adriana, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you.